As I've been telling you for weeks, as you know, food is an integral part of our lives. We have to eat in order to live, uh, but we can get carried away. We can be in love with a uh, with a restaurant, right? Uh, many times uh, while we're eating, maybe the, maybe your gatherings are like this, or maybe it's just ours, I don't know, but uh, many times when we're eating one meal, we're planning the next meal. Uh, well, where are we going to go for supper? Or what's going to be? Or and, uh, and, and we have our favorites, whether it's a favorite restaurant or favorite food or whatever the case might be. But um, all this fall, we've been, we've been seeing that there's more to the meal than just the food, right? We gather together around a meal for connection, for companionship. It's, a, it's an awesome thing as a, as a family to gather together, to eat together, um, no matter where life has taken you throughout the day, uh, we come back together for a meal in the evening and we can reconnect and we can get back on track and uh, share where we've been and, and, and bring that all together. And, and that's, a, that's an important thing. And, and, and so many times in the Gospels, as we've been telling you, as we've been looking at, uh, Jesus used the setting of a meal to connect with people. Last Sunday, we started looking at what has been referred to as the Last Supper. And uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but when Jesus and the disciples got to the upper room that night, Peter said to the maitre d', we'd like a table for 26, please. And the maitre d' kind of looked and said, well, it looks like you only have 13. And he said, yeah, but we're just all going to sit on one side of the table. So uh, that's my only other Last Supper joke. That's all I got. Um, so uh, they probably didn't sit like that, uh, but uh, Da Vinci thought it, uh, it looked good in a painting. Um, it's the most famous meal in the Bible, the Last Supper. It really uh, wasn't the last time that Jesus ate with the disciples, as we'll see. We still have a couple of weeks left in this series. Uh, but it's the last supper before Jesus' crucifixion, right? Uh, last week we saw how Jesus showed his disciples uh, how much he loved them as he served them, as he washed their feet. Many things happened in that meal, a lot of, of stuff. As I said, uh, uh, parts of eight different chapters in the Gospels talk about this meal and, and what happened there and the things that Jesus said and, and taught and the things that happened. Uh, Jesus uh, prayed for them ar- around that table. Jesus prayed for you around that table. He, there's actually a se- segment of his, his prayer in the Gospel of John where he's sitting around that table praying for the people that will come to faith through the ministry of the church. And, uh, and 2,000 years later, here we are uh, as part of those folks that, uh, that Jesus was praying for even on that night at the Last Supper. A whole lot of things happened. They even sang a hymn together, which we could probably say uh, we need to sing hymns now because that's what Jesus did, right? WWJD, sing hymns. All hymns all the time. No, we're not going to do that. No. We can argue about that later. Uh, today I'd like to focus, we, we looked at the, the washing of the feet last week. Today I, I'd like to look at the part of the meal that we uh, think of the most often, that we practice, continue to practice. Uh, literally we have dinner with Jesus uh, at, at least once a month in our church. Uh, it, we call it communion, the Lord's Supper. It's a ritual, it's a sacrament of the church uh, with a, a lot of significance. And uh, so I'm going to read uh, today from the Gospel of Luke. Again, this is recorded in all four Gospels, but the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, uh, beginning in verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. 
After taking the cup, he gave thanks and he said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to uh, the church that he had planted in the city of Corinth, uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, sums up this uh, this whole meal, this uh, communion supper uh, as well. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 uh, and following says this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So part of this uh, meal with his disciples, Jesus used the common elements of bread and wine to signify the importance of what he knew that he was about to suffer. Although the disciples didn't really catch on to the significance of it right that way, uh, right away in that evening, uh, after Jesus' death and his resurrection and ascension, uh, this this meal was uh, was a central part of all their gatherings. If in the book of Acts, the story of the the birth of the church and the early days of the church, uh, we we see in Acts chapter two that they were they were the church was devoted to four things. Uh, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Four things that the the early church did, one of those things was the breaking of bread, was this, this communion meal, this, uh, this commemoration of the Last Supper, uh, this, this, uh, the bread and the cup where Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And so it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a sacrament of the church. By saying that, we're merely saying that it was demonstrated by Jesus, and it is, uh, as some theologians say, that I think makes a lot of sense, it's an outward sign of inward grace. A sacrament is an outward sign of inward grace. So it's something we do outwardly, physically, but it has deep spiritual significance. We take the, the, the elements of the, the cup and the, and the bread, and, and it's a physical thing that we do, but it has inward grace. We experience the grace of God significantly in our spiritual lives, even as we're participating in this physical uh, activity. Couple of things before we dive into that, uh, that, uh, spiritual, uh, significance of this. Um, couple of things to clear up, couple of questions maybe you have, couple of things maybe you, uh, I've always kind of wondered that about communion. The first one is why do we use juice instead of wine? Some of you are hoping or wishing that we would use wine instead. Why don't we, can't we go I heard a story this week about a pastor who, uh, told his wife in the middle of the day that he was heading down to the Red Cross to, uh, to donate blood. And uh, so when his son came home, uh, early elementary school, he, he got home from school and he asked his mom, where, uh, where, where dad, oh, is dad out visiting the sick people again? And his mom said, he's giving blood. And, she, and, and the little boy said, well, but we all know it's just grape juice, right, mom? The practice is, true story, the practice of using grape juice for communion actually started in the late 1800s. So not so long ago, in 2,000 years since Jesus uh, had the, uh, this Last Supper with his disciples, in the last 150-ish years, uh, the, uh, the, uh, in the Methodist church, uh, they began uh, using, uh, using grape juice instead of wine. 
Um, the primary reasons were uh, that it wouldn't be a hindrance to former alcoholics and also so children could participate in communion. And, and so the, the story goes, the, uh, the history goes, that there was a Methodist dentist by the name of Thomas and uh, he was a, a good solid layman in his church and he was concerned about this use of, of fermented wine in the church and he had heard about Louis Pasteur and his pasteurizing process of milk and so he applied that process to grape juice and he began began to use it in his church and and he was a communion steward and so he used this in his church and and uh, Thomas's son Charles uh, was a was a young Methodist layman in his church in southern New Jersey and and he began to market this pasteurized grape juice to other churches as an alternative for using wine in in, in their communion services and as as word spread and as the temperance movement grew among evangelical Protestant churches um, Charles Thomas's son Charles quit his regular job in order to produce grape juice full-time, you may be familiar with Thomas and Charles's last name, Welch. Some of you were there. Yeah, you know that. Welch's grape juice came out of uh, the, the whole deal of uh, using grape juice instead of wine uh, for communion in churches. If you don't believe me, Google it. It's there, I promise. But don't Google it right now. Hang on a little bit until after the service. Some churches use wine, some churches use grape juice. We use the juice for uh, those, those main reasons that uh, started 100, 150 years ago in the, in the church. And so, so we, we, uh, we still rely on and emphasize the significance of that, that cup uh, that, that, that signifies the blood of Christ without the, uh, the fermentation. Why is it so small? That might be another question. I mean, we're taking a little cracker and a shot of juice. What's the deal, right? Uh, why is it such a tiny thing? And maybe you've wondered that. Maybe you know. Um, it's actually because some people in the early church started abusing the practice of this meal. Uh, again, that passage in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, Paul is talking about how people were coming to church hungry, then they were overeating, and they were not saving some for others, and they were even, even getting drunk in the process. And so he warned them uh, to eat before they come, and to wait for each other, to celebrate together, and to make sure that their hearts were right with God as they did so. Uh, it's, it's found there... Um, Picking up in verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 11. So then whoever eats and uh, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if you were more discerning with regard to, your, to ourselves... If we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. So that's why over the years the church has used just small amounts of this this uh, this bread and and the, the the cup so as not to slip into this practice of uh, overdoing it uh, and uh, and and thus uh, going against what Paul is saying here in First Corinthians eleven. So just a just a couple of uh, uh, little things. Maybe you've wondered those things. Maybe you haven't. Uh, but uh, those things uh, those are, are some of the reasons why we do communion the way we do. Um, 
But let's dive into the spiritual significance of this dinner with Jesus. Uh, it's, it's a sacred time in our spiritual lives uh, when we participate, when we gather around the table. Uh, and so let's, let's look at, at what might make it such a sacred time. The, the first thing I want to, to highlight today is that it's a time for remembrance. It's a time for remembrance. Obviously, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, right? So when we participate in communion, we're remembering. But then I have to ask, well, what am I supposed to remember during this time? Uh, I think there are several things, uh, three of them here today. The first is remember the agony of Christ. Throughout my life, whenever I have taken communion, the number one thing that I dwell on as I hold the, the, the elements, the bread and the cup, is the agony that Jesus went through, his suffering that he went through for me. Jesus was beaten, he was mocked, he was spit on, he was humiliated, he was crucified, he was stabbed, he was brutally killed for me. We need to remember the agony of Christ. The agony that he suffered was excruciating. And in fact, that word excruciating was actually coined. It came from the agony that people went through when they were crucified. It was an excruciating death and that's what Jesus went through for you. And for me, what's perhaps even even more touching in this is that when Jesus was gathered around that table with his disciples, obviously he had not gone through any of that agony yet. He's telling them, remember, the, 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 this is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood, which is poured out for you. He knew what was coming. He knew the agony he was going to suffer. He told them to remember it before it ever even happened. He said he knew what was coming and he went through it anyway. We have to remember the agony of Christ. But we can't stop there. We have to also remember the achievement of Christ. What did Christ achieve through that agony? A, a person dying such a violent death is a very moving thing. But, but, but this is more than just feeling bad, feeling pity about someone who suffered. Our hearts are touched when, when we see any type of suffering. But communion takes us deeper than that. We have to remember what Jesus did on the cross changes eternity. He achieved something uh, eternal in that agony. He, he did that for you and for me, for, for, for every person who has, ever, who has ever lived. Jesus wasn't just dying. He was dying for us. He was dying to pay for our sins. Uh, G- because Jesus died, I am forgiven. You are forgiven. Because Jesus died, uh, he, he has achieved that forgiveness for us. And we need to remember that as we gather around the table. It couldn't have happened any other way. Oswald Chambers in his devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. If you're going through that this year, uh, the reading uh, here is, is coming up in, in just a couple of weeks. Um, from November 21st, it's a daily devotional, highly recommended. Uh, Oswald Chambers, My Utmost for His Highest. But he says this, Never build your case for forgiveness on the idea that God is our Father and He will forgive us because He loves us. That contradicts the revealed truth of God in Jesus Christ. It makes the cross unnecessary and the redemption much ado about nothing. God forgives sin only because of the death of Christ. God could forgive people in no other way than by the death of his son. And Jesus is exalted as savior because of his death. The greatest note of triumph ever sounded in the ears of a startled universe was that sounded on the cross of Christ. It is finished. That is the final word in the redemption 
of humankind. When we remember Christ's death in communion, we remember what his death achieved, (laughs) our forgiveness. We remember his agony. We remember what that agony achieved. But we also remember the appearance of Jesus. Because Jesus not only died, he was raised from the dead. And that's part of all this as well. We remember the whole story. Uh, If Jesus had not been raised, the agony of his death wouldn't have achieved anything. And our eating and drinking wouldn't be much of a celebration, right? Uh, But even as we remember his broken body and his shed blood, we remember that Jesus did not stay in the grave. He is alive today. He appeared to Mary. He appeared to the disciples. Actually, Scripture says he appeared to over 500 people between the time he was raised and the time that he went back up to heaven. And we experience his presence, his living presence, every day through the Holy Spirit, even to this day. Because Jesus conquered the grave We remember. So communion, the Lord's Supper, is a time of remembrance. Remember his agony. Remember what that agony achieved. And remember that, that we didn't, we don't have to stay mired in that agony. But Jesus appeared again and is living today. It's a time for remembrance. But there's more to it than that. There's more to do. It's also a time for repentance. As we saw in 1 Corinthians 11 there, Paul warned about this, uh, about coming to the table in an unworthy manner. In the, in the message, uh, paraphrase in verse 28 there in 1 Corinthians 11, it says, examine your motives, test your heart, come to this meal in holy awe. So this isn't just, oh, look, there's some crackers and juice. I, I'm kind of hungry. I'll have a snack. This is a, this is a, a time for, for a holy awe. <laughs> it's a sense of unworthiness that there is no way in the world we deserve to be forgiven. There's no way in the world that we deserve to be died for. So we must take time at the table to examine ourselves, to open ourselves up to God's examination, to accept his gift of salvation, uh, fresh and new. Uh, to be be grateful for that if you're if you're not ready to do that if if you're not ready to make things right with god paul says it's better to just not take communion rather than cause problems we read it already verses 29 and 30 those who eat and drink without discerning the the body of christ eat and drink judgment on themselves that's why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep he's not talking about taking a nap in church <laughs> People died because they weren't worthy uh, when they took communion. Uh, they were they were just treating it flippantly, and, and Paul says that they were getting sick and dying because of it. Kind of kind of a scary thing, <laughs> um, because they were participating in communion while they had known sin in their lives. Paul said it, it was it was a problem. So I, I guess it's more than just snack time. The Lord's Supper is not something to be taken lightly. It's a privilege, and it comes only after soul-searching and repentance. That being said, uh, communion is a great time to take care of that. Communion is a great time to, to, uh, to repent, to, to make things right with God. Even in those moments, even as we, as we pause and we stop and, and, uh, and, and we gather around the table and we hold those elements, we realize the, the sacrifice that Christ has done for us and what he has, uh, has achieved in that and that he's coming again someday. Uh, we recognize that and we realize that we are unworthy. It is a time to receive his grace, even in those moments. An outward sign of inward grace. We need to remember, we need to, uh, it's a time for repentance. 
It's also a time for relationship. We have to realize that, uh, that this is about uh, a relationship. Obviously, uh, that's one reason why the church started calling this communion. Because we're communing, not, we're communing with God, certainly, but we're also, there's an element of togetherness or oneness as we're communing together through this. Just as uh, any meal, as we've said, is a great time to connect with people and to, to, to build relationships. There's, a, there's an intimacy or a bond that, that, that takes place as God's uh, people celebrate communion together. That's why usually when we have communion here, we, uh, we, uh, everyone is, is, is served, but we ask you to hold on to those elements. It's a great time for reflection and, and, uh, and, and uh, remembering and repentance and, and those things, but it also then gives us an opportunity to uh, partake in the meal together. It's as if we're all uh, pulled up to the table together and we're going to take that, take that together. It's because it's a, it's a community event where we do this together it's not the most efficient way to do it necessarily but it's it's uh, it's a significant way to do it and i i think it's it's extremely significant to to think that this meal that we will celebrate we're going to do that here in just a few minutes uh that this meal that we celebrate together today has been celebrated by christians by followers of jesus for the last almost 2000 years if you can picture, uh, in your mind, uh, pulling up to a table that extends <laughs> down through history all the way back to that Last Supper. We'll all have to sit on one side of the table, I guess. But no, uh, well, it extends all the way back to that Last Supper. And it's as if, it's almost as if, it is as if we are communing with all those who have followed Christ from that point until now. We're gathering up to the same meal we're remembering the same sacrifice. We're communing with those who are followers of Christ. It's a time for connection, a time for relationship. The fourth thing is that it's also a time for a re- reassurance of his return. Because that, that table, if you picture in your mind that table extending all the way back through history, I challenge you also to picture that table extending in the opposite direction uh, from this point forward into the future, uh, to all who will believe, culminating at the end of time when, with what the Bible calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are gathered around that same table. Jesus told his disciples that night that, that he was not going to eat or drink again uh, uh, of this meal until they celebrated it together in his Father's kingdom. Uh, in the Lord's Supper, we acknowledge that there is a time coming then we, when we will no longer need to remember because Jesus will be face to face with us. Isn't that cool to think about? That right now we're remembering what he did and what that provided for us and the life that we can live because of that. But we also recognize that this is a time of looking ahead. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. There's an element of future here, right? And we're pointing ahead to, to that glorious time when we will be gathered around the table literally face to face with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Communion reassures us that Jesus is coming back again. And we need to remember that as we gather at the table. And just one more thing. If you're filling out the blanks, there's, there's just one left, I think. It's a time for reverence. As when we gather for this dinner with Jesus, we do it together. We anticipate his return. We, we search our hearts and we get things right with God. Remember what he's done for us. It's a time of, it's a time of worship. Right Through this, through this act of eating and drinking, we're actually worshiping the living Christ. 
Gracious Father God, we thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you for his sacrifice, for the the body that was broken and the blood that was shed for us. We thank you for for forgiveness that is is now possible, for holiness that is is now a, a possibility, for life eternal in heaven. We thank you for the hope of your return someday. We celebrate all of that and more as we have gathered around the table this morning. And I pray that as we go from here, we will know not only did we walk through a a, a physical uh, activity, church activity, but that we experienced deep, deeply spiritually significant things as your grace was poured out upon us this morning. Go with us now. May your spirit empower us, encourage us, and lead us into into this week as we represent you in the world where we live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.